This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Xu Mo, host for New Books Network. Today I have with me Margie Mitchum, the brain lady, to talk about her latest book, The AI in Talent Development, Capitalize on the AI Revolution to Change the Way You Work, Learn, and Live. Margie Mitchum is a scholar practitioner in the field of education and learning and president of learning to go She specializes in practical applications for neuroscience to enhance learning and performance. She has published Brain Matters, How to Help Anyone Learn Anything Using Neuroscience. Welcome to New Books Network, Margie. Thank you, Shu. I'm delighted to be here. So before we talk about your book, can you share a bit about your story? How did you come to your calling? You know, I love that you uh, phrase the question that way because I really do feel that it is a calling, and it's interesting how that happens. It was a very meandering path. I did know that I wanted to be a teacher, and I knew that very early on in life because when I started in school as a little girl, I couldn't learn how to read. I really struggled, and my teachers were not aware of it at the time, and it was not a something that teachers normally watched for at the time, but I am dyslexic, which means my brain works a little differently. And sometimes processing the printed words on a page can be challenging for me. There are also a lot of benefits to having a brain that works that way. For example, many people believe that someone who is dyslexic is better at seeing patterns than than we are as a rule because the brain is not, it has sort of freer range for what it's looking at and, and what it recognizes as information. But that experience was so painful and so difficult until I learned some strategies to do well in school. And I did eventually do well in school with the help of a lot of wonderful teachers as well as family members. Matter of fact, it was my baby sister who taught me how to read by reading me her Dr. Seuss books. So if it hadn't been for the help of a whole lot of people, I'm not sure where I would have ended up. But so from that point on, I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to do that for other people. So I got my education degree and was starting to prepare to be a teacher. And I got this summer job that was just supposed to fill the gap between my graduation and my teaching job. And it was a sales job. The company was hiring students out of college 
to find opportunities for their seasoned salespeople to close. So all I was supposed to do was find someone who was willing to talk to the salesperson and hand that over. But I kept telling people how wonderful the product was, and they kept buying from me which made the salespeople very angry because they didn't get the leads I was supposed to be giving them, but it Mm -hmm. made the sales manager realize that maybe I could be good at sales. And they offered me a a really nice job to do that. And quite frankly, I made a whole lot more money than teaching Mm -hmm. did. And I had just gotten married. I was 19. I had a mortgage to pay. And all of a sudden, sales looked really interesting to me. And I did that for a few years. And then that same company asked me, would I be willing to train other people in how to do what I did and be a good salesperson? And I sat down, I thought about it, and I realized what I had been doing was teaching. I hadn't really used traditional sales techniques. I had simply taught people about the product and how it would help them. And if they wanted the product, they bought it. So I built a training program around that, which is what got me back into education. I went back and got my master's in adult education, and I worked in several different corporate environments for a while and discovered something really interesting, and that was that I was hiring. As I moved up and got more and more responsibility, I was hiring consultants to do what I knew how to do. And... Mm -hmm. Their work looked a lot more interesting. They were working with a wide variety of companies instead of staying in just one. So I went out one day on a huge leap of faith. I had no clients, but I had a plan, and I started my own consulting company. And I was very fortunate that my first client was my former employer. All of a sudden, all the ideas that they weren't particularly interested in sounded absolutely brilliant because now I was a consultant. Funny how that happens. So. I have been very blessed, very fortunate to have a successful career as a learning consultant. And oh, about 15 years ago, I was at a conference where a neuroscientist was talking about some of her discoveries about how the brain works and and how when people are learning, how those new fragile neural networks are forming and what things can be done to strengthen those. And I I went up to her after her talk, and I said, I I really loved your talk, but I'm not sure what to do with it. And Mm -hmm. she looked right at me, and she said, well, that's up to you to decide. Mm -hmm. And I took that as a mission. I said, you know, Mm -hmm. she's right. And I looked around, and no one in learning and development was really paying much attention to all this wonderful science we were relying on. And you probably, because I know you have an education background, you probably learned some of the same things, these models, these theories of We studied these learning theories that came from psychology, and, you know, they were the best we had at the time, but quite frankly... Some of them didn't line up as I was looking at what the science revealed through actual images of a working brain was telling us. And so I started building my consulting practice around designing the way the brain wants to learn and teaching people about that. And that led to my first book, Brain Matters, 
how to help anyone learn anything using neuroscience. That really led to opportunities to speak and to talk to people like you and to connect with larger and larger clients. As I was doing that, I discovered that I couldn't just talk about the human brain anymore because artificial intelligence and neuroscience have been on a a collision path for the last 10 years or so. They Mm -hmm. are helping each other discover how any neural network works. And so I had to become educated in how artificial intelligence can support learning, can help us understand the brain better, can streamline many, many tasks that we have in talent development. And that led to what's my third book, if you want to count them that way, Talent Development, AI and Talent Development. And so what I do now for clients is I work at that intersection between neuroscience and AI, because for me, it is, it is part of a continuum. They're part of the same discipline. And I think the more we embrace that concept, the more prepared we are for the AI revolution that's already here. So that's how I ended up where I am. And if technology takes learning somewhere else, it's hard to imagine where else it might take us, I'm going to follow because that's what my calling really is. It's helping people learn. Thank you so much for sharing of your of your journey from sales to consultant and to running your own business and also the experience from learning from a neuroscience to realizing the importance of AI in learning. You wrote this book during the COVID times. How did the pandemic affect your writing? And can you share more about the crisis at the moment? Absolutely. And I I think we've been living in crisis mode for the last several years. And and I'll get to what that's done to our brains. It's, um, it's really a difficult time for all of us. When I wrote it, the book, I actually wrote in my introduction that this book was written at the time of a global pandemic. And at the time, we, we didn't have a vaccine yet. We didn't quite understand what we were dealing with. It continued to mutate. We kept hearing all kinds of questions about what's the best way to protect ourselves. There were even debates about whether there really was a pandemic or not, because there is a a shockingly large number of people in the world today who are otherwise pretty well educated, who have chosen to stop believing in science. Quite personally, I, I don't see that as an option. Science is simply a statement of truth that has been proven by multiple experiments. And so to deny something that every doctor in the world was saying, to me, it's quite a remarkable and shocking phenomenon, but that was happening. And so I thought, I am writing this at a time that really feels like the dark ages. I I don't know who's going to read this. I don't know if there are enough people who really care about science and technology anymore. But I wrote it because I believed it's the right thing for us in talent development to do is to pay attention to technology and to apply science to help people, to help organizations. And I'm learning that it's become even more important. The response I'm getting for the book today 
is even greater than last year when it came out because we were still in the throes of a pandemic. And it was people had other things on their minds. And now that we can sort of breathe again, the deaths have gone down and the cases are more manageable. And many people have taken advantage of very reliable, very safe vaccines, although there's still that element that doesn't believe in that. I mean, you might as well not believe in gravity. It's still holding you down. But Mm -hmm. there are people who have chosen to live their lives that way. Well, you know what? I can't worry about them. I can't help them. But I can help the people who want to know. And that's what I've focused on. Um, There were other things with writing during a pandemic besides that great weight of, gosh, where's the world going? And worrying about and being so heartsick about all the deaths and all the the danger and nowhere to turn. For example, traditional things to promote a book, like a book launch and book signings, weren't really possible in 2020 and mm-hmm. in 2021. Now, now this year, they're possible again. And so I'm getting a chance to meet readers. And I really kind of feel like this book is just launching. Uh, because of that. It's, it's been a bit delayed, but it's, it's really picking up steam. Yeah, I'm glad that there's a breath of optimism that we can breathe in spite of the, the pandemic that we're still in. Mm-hmm. Going into your book, sometimes AI is called the last invention. Do you agree that artificial intelligence is the most disruptive technology there is in changing everything humans do. You know, I would say that is probably a true statement so far. But here's the thing about humans. We're we're enormously adaptable. And I do not believe it's the last disruption. I simply believe our imaginations can't see past the horizon to what might be next. But here's what I suspect might be next. And I'm not alone in this thinking. As a matter of fact, this is going to be my next book. I call it The Other AI. It's augmented intelligence. It's the marriage of artificial intelligence with the human brain. Artificial intelligence, as we are able to build it today, is very narrow, very focused on specific tasks that perhaps an algorithm can do better or faster or more efficiently than a human being, that doesn't mean it's truly smarter than us. And that doesn't mean that uh, an army of these algorithms is going to take over the world anytime soon. There is great potential and very exciting progress being made with brain-to-computer interface, and in fact, in ways that are less and less invasive. Where the work's being done right now is to help people who have trouble using their bodies, people who are paralyzed. As a matter of fact, I have someone very close to me that I'm very hopeful this technology will help her in time for her to have a more outwardly focused life and to regain some movement and some control over her body. Once we achieve that and address those heartbreaking, pressing needs, the potential to connect directly to a database or procedures guide or to other people who are in your network, and to do that through your own thoughts because of programming 
that creates the potential for AI to become your partner and to do it in a way that is so seamless that a few generations from now, we humans might be a very different kind of species that is part artificial. And I know that that is really out there and really science fiction, but we are today living in a world that only about 40 or 50 years ago was written about in science fiction. The pace of these advances can be quite startling and the foundation's already there. So I think it's highly likely there is a whole other way of being human ahead of us. And I I suggest that, I hint at that a bit in this book, in AI and Talent Development in the final chapter, and also talk about some of the ethical challenges that are ahead of us. So if we want to survive in this brave new world that's not just coming, but is already here in many respects, we need to get a handle on how are we going to deal with the ethical questions that are are certainly coming our way. And, you know, every technology gives us those kind of ethical questions. The automobile was a, a wonderful, transformative technology and perhaps in its time was considered the ultimate disruptor. It certainly changed a lot of jobs, removed a lot of jobs, changed how we thought of moving it for the United States where I live. It made the country smaller. It made it much possible to go see people all over and to travel and to see things you'd only dreamed about. It was magical. It was also very dangerous. People didn't know how to control these vehicles. We had to start making rules for what side of the road you drive on, who gets to go first in an intersection, how fast can you go, how do you ensure that your vehicle is safe. All of those became a combination of laws and just generally accepted etiquette. We have to do the same thing with our artificial intelligence. And unfortunately, typically, our technology are developed before we figure that stuff out. So right now, we have some wonderful technology that doesn't have a lot of controls on it. We are relying on the good intentions of the developers. And AI has already shown that it is possible that even with the best of intentions, we can have some very negative, unintended consequences. So we need to become smarter about AI and what it can do so that we can start putting these guide rails in place. But no, I don't think it's the final technology. I think we humans continue to reinvent us using our technology, which means There's another chapter yet for us to tell, and I suspect it will be in the form of augmented intelligence. I loved you used the word reinvention. In your book, you talked about rebooting yourself, which seems mm. to me a little bit frightening. Like the, there is a bit of like discomfort I have uh, with incorporating series or Amazon um, bots into my life for fear of privacy and and simply just like having someone who that I might, you know, fall head over toes into the, you know, to use your words, the uncanny valley where I become attached to to the machines. What would you say to someone to help them ease the discomfort around the freakiness and to encourage more what-ifs 
to be realized. Sue, you have a great insight into exactly where we should be right now. Quite frankly, you should be a little bit frightened. This is exactly where these ethical questions come in. We have serious privacy concerns about things like uh, smart speakers. And we've all discovered that they may be on at times that we don't know. They may be collecting information about us and our family and our behavior. So becoming aware of how these things work. So it is, for example, really a wonderful convenience for me. One woman shop, you know, I, I don't hire a staff. I don't have an assistant. But to have an automated assistant that can help me organize my day, review my calendar, make changes, I find this really liberating. And I can imagine a day when perhaps that assistant will have a bit more personality and will understand me a little better and what my preferences are. Right now, quite frankly, both Siri and Alexa are not particularly bright. They, uh, you know, their AI is pretty limited and you have to monitor. It's just like if you hired a human assistant, you can't just suddenly turn them loose. You've got to train them and you've got to give them feedback and you've got to give them parameters. And there's certain things you would never want them to do for you. For example, there's no AI that could have this talk you and I are having right now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are guide rails to that. When it comes to things like education, there's some really wonderful progress being made, though. And so, for example, you can program what I would call a chat bot, and that can help somebody learn. It can be there to give them practice. It can quiz them to see if they really know what they think they know and then recommend remedial subjects they might want to take where they had gaps. It can interview you about your career goals and then come back with a learning journey recommendation. Matter of fact, that's an application we just did recently at Learning to Go for the United Nations. So that's these are all very real things we can do today. People just aren't taking advantage. As a rule, I found the learning and development profession or the talent development profession, if you will, behind other businesses that were already using these applications and finding ways to use them in a way that made sense for talent development is really what the book is all about. Um, yeah, it can be a little scary. Only, I think our greatest fear is if it's unknown. The more you learn about it, the more you understand the limitations, you realize that some of your fears are probably not very likely scenarios anyway. And that some of your fears, while quite realistic, can be mitigated and prevented by proper due diligence and governance and design up front. Mm -hmm. Now, let's talk a little bit about the Uncanny Valley. This, that's one of my favorite things that I discovered in researching this book. And just for people who might not be as familiar with it as you and I are, it's that feeling you get when you suddenly realize that you have been engaging with an artificial intelligence and it felt so real. It sort of creeps us out. And I'll tell you when this first happened to me, I was looking at an ad, this in the middle of the pandemic, and an ad came up on my phone, this adorable puppy. And at first I was horrified because I'm a big animal lover. And I thought, how terrible people are selling puppies 
online. They have no idea. What are they doing? Shipping these poor little creatures? You know, it was this adorable little thing. And I, I didn't recognize it as any kind of breed, but such a cute face. And I thought, well, you know what? For people stuck in their homes, desperately lonely during the pandemic, this is probably a really good idea. And at the end of it, the order form made it clear that this was an artificially intelligent programmable machine built to behave like a puppy. I dropped my phone. I was so appalled. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's the uncanny valley. I was just loving this puppy. I thought, oh, I think I might get one. And and then I realized what it was. And for a moment, that just seemed monstrous to me. And then I, I started looking at it. And there's actually very sound research that for certain clinical uses, puppies and cats are actually already being used, machines that behave like that, for, say, people with dementia. It's very calming Mm -hmm. to have, say, a pretend cat that purrs when you touch it, a puppy that looks in your eyes and plays with you and follows you around and just sits and gives you company. And people with dementia, they respond very well to pets, but they're not necessarily equipped to take care of that pet. So ethically, it's not a good idea to give them a pet. But a machine like this can fill some of that need for social connection and companionship at no risk to a real-life animal. So it's really an interesting, because to your brain, if it something behaves like you expect a human to behave, we can't tell the difference. Mm -hmm. And that's also the danger, is it can become easy to manipulate people with an artificial intelligence. And we unfortunately have seen an awful lot of that online and social media. You've heard of these bots. That's what they are. They are programs that are designed to behave and sound online like people, spouting all kinds of patently false things. And because the kinds of people who are in these chats don't really do a lot of critical thinking, these slides become very credible simply because they are put out there in a way that sounds like a human put them out. And we suspect it's that practice has actually influenced elections, not only in my country, but in other countries, this is to me horrifying that anyone would think that's okay and that we're not actively looking to control it more than we are. A few people are starting to look into that now. So these are the dangers. These are the risks that come from being able to build something before you have figured out whether or not you should build it and what's the right way to build it and how do we control that. So we all share a responsibility in that. In some ways, I think we're lucky in the talent development that we are lagging behind these other use cases because that means we have a chance to learn from them and to build more responsibly when we build our AI applications and keep the brakes on and keep the humans involved to monitor the responses and the engagement. So I know that's a very long answer to your question, but I I hope it answered it. 
Yes, thank you. I wanted to talk about some strategies you have set in place, ways that a creative thought leader can make improvements upon their learning journeys. Sure, absolutely. And let's let's take a look at it from several different aspects. So in talent development, we have so many different functions that fall under that. We have, for example, recruiting and hiring. Already, artificial intelligence is helping recruiters attract the talent they want. So instead of guessing or experimenting, I can program in all the skills I want and very quickly the correct program can identify for me which outlets, where are those people online? So if I want to hire great salespeople, what sites are they visiting? How would I find them? What kind of jobs are they looking for? What do I need to offer them in order to get them interested? So there are there are some great applications, just even starting from before the talent is even in your door. When you are onboarding new talent, there's been an awful lot during the pandemic. We all had to pivot very quickly to more technology-driven ways to train and develop people. And unfortunately, I will say virtual classrooms became the default solution. The reason I say unfortunately is because it it really it works very well if you limit how much time you put people in but at, you probably heard of zoom fatigue i would have been much better had we created a more mixed approach where people could do some self study they could maybe get on just a phone line with someone. Maybe they engage with an artificial intelligence to do some practice, but not just this call after call, being on camera all day is very, very ineffective. And in fact, it's it's been proven to be a significant contributor to the great resignation to all people just suddenly saying, you know what, I'm done. I don't even have another job to go to, I'm just quitting. And that has created some of the talent shortage that we're facing. So some things that AI can do to help that is technology that's actually been in use for quite a while with airline pilots uh, is reading the bio signs, including eye movements. When you get fatigued, your eye movements get narrower and narrower. And so an AI can recognize that and adjust the monitor on the plane so that the most critical life-saving information is right there in front of you because that's the only part of your screen you're looking at. It can also alert you that, hey, it looks like you're getting fatigued. It might be time to let the co-pilot take over if that's an option. We can use that same technology to tell when a learner probably needs a, a break from their screen time. We can use it to recommend other means of experiencing the information. We can also, it's very typical to apply a test or an assessment at the end of training. Mm -hmm. And a much more engaging way to do that might be through a conversation. The old-fashioned oral argument that some of us went through in college where you had to actually explain in your own words a concept to demonstrate you not only could pass a multiple choice test, but you could actually apply it in a way that showed a much deeper 
understanding, well, you can do that with a chatbot. You can have oral exams that are uh, much deeper and much more engaging and really pinpoint what people understand and what they only have passing knowledge of. You can use it instead of traditional e-learning. Now, what I call traditional e-learning is, you know, you log on, there's, there's a little video, maybe it's just slides, there's a voiceover, and every once in a while, they do what we used to call engagement. They have you click mm-hmm. on something. Pick the best choice out of these options, or what would you do next? Or, you know, and you get a little feedback and then you go on. Well, there was a time when that was really cool. But, you know, let's face it, our online experience is so much more engaging now. What artificial intelligence can bring is just a completely different way of learning that doesn't rely on slides and voiceovers, is shorter and more targeted and highly, highly hyper-personal. It's really kind of ironic that a machine can help us create learning experiences that are unique to each learner. It does that by analyzing and responding to individual behaviors in ways that we couldn't do before when we were mass-producing training to be consumed online. So what it does is it really brings us back to some very old school principles using the technology in a new way. What people need to what they know already and what they're curious about and how well they are doing, how well they're mastering the content as you give it to them. Some people will need to have it repeated. Some people will need it simplified before they can move forward. Some people need it accelerated. And that's something an AI can do much better than even a human instructor. If we had enough of them, we might be able to give everyone an individual tutor, but that's not going to happen in today's age. So an AI tutor could be the next best thing, maybe even better. So I've been studying a a foreign language. I'm curious what are some resources that you have encountered that have embedded successfully the learning chatbots um, that you have mentioned? Yeah, and I don't want to necessarily name a name brand because people pay for these things, but I will tell you there are some wonderful apps that you can get on your phone that are probably the very best way to learn a foreign language. And they are built on the foundation of the neuroscience and the AI. So they are a perfect example of a place where, in fact, um, these two sciences are working together to deliver something. Your experience working with that app will be different than anyone else's because your responses are going to be your own. And the next response from the app is determined by what you put in. If you are having a practice conversation and you speak into that app, how well you pronounce the words, for example, is something that it's tracking. So it can correct your pronunciation and it can correct your grammar. It recognizes your skill set in terms of how quickly you respond. It adjusts its speed accordingly. These are all things that are pretty readily available at a consumer level. 
And here's another interesting thing that has happened is that as consumers, we can often purchase a far more engaging learning experience than what will be delivered in our workplace. And that's a problem. The workplace needs to catch up. The same app that is teaching uh, language could be teaching business concepts or sales concepts or customer service, and in a much more engaging way, in a much more personalized way than we're doing it today. Could you give some examples of how learning to go are helping to make informed decisions about learning technologies to help the workplace upgrade? Shortly after my book came out, I got an email from a fellow in Turin, Italy. His name was Hugo, and he said, I, I really was fascinated by what you did, and I would like you to do something for my organization. Well, he happened to be in charge of all the um, systems training for the United Nations. So it was a nice opportunity to put my money where my practice, where my mouth is, so to speak, and deliver something that I had said, hey, this is possible, let's do it. And what we ended up doing was building a chatbot that goes on their LMS. And most companies have a learning management system with tons of courses, but learners struggle to find what they need. What courses should I be taking? What he wanted was an assessment, sort of an interview that would come back with a recommendation. These are the courses I recommend for you. This is the order you should take them in and approximately how long it should take you to do that, to develop the skills you need for your current job as well as your aspirations. So we put that together. We now have a working bot that does this and delivers back a PDF that you can download with recommended training. And what we're going to watch very carefully, and it's going to take us another six months to a year to collect the data, is we have initial feedback that the learners enjoy it very much. What we want to do is see, are the learning outcomes, are we getting more effective choices? Are people making better choices in terms of their development and therefore advancing better in their roles and in their careers as a result of these recommendations? Are, are those recommendations better than people trying to figure it out on their own? Now, another thing we've done is we have a practice for salespeople. This goes back to my early days as a salesperson. One of the things you're taught to do is overcome objections. An objection is Anything your customer, your potential customer says to you, that's a reason that they don't want to buy your product. And some of these can be overcome through logic or through providing more information. If you can uncover something that the customer doesn't quite understand or needs more information on. And so traditionally what we do is we have people practice over and over. We call it role playing. We have them practice with a more experienced person or an instructor on how to mm -hmm. overcome these objections. But the problem with that is that they're not always available and there's not a lot of time to practice. And most salespeople get a little nervous as anyone would with another human being, you, you're worried you're going to be judged or you're not going to look good. And particularly if it's a new job, the last thing you want to do is look like you don't know what you're doing. Mm 
You're afraid that that somehow will get back to your new manager. So most people prefer to practice in private, and yet they need that social practice in order to get feedback on whether they're doing it right. They can't just practice on their own. It's not very productive. So you can build a chatbot that does that and provides feedback on, you know, the way you said that makes me a little nervous. Do you want to rephrase that? No, and you can you can give real time. And another terrific thing about an AI solution is it's always there. It's always available. Any number of users. These are very scalable applications. Some people may want to practice, you know, at the end of their day or first thing in the morning. You don't have to wait until an instructor is available or your sales manager is ready to role play with you. It's it's there whenever you want it. And if you want lots of practice, you can. Do it over and over again, and every time the scenario will be a little bit different because that's part of the programming. I love that. Here in your book, I quote: "No training program or LMS learning management system changes behavior." Can you share why you emphasize that? As a consultant, I often get requests from clients for something that really isn't a training solution. And I believe we have a responsibility as talent development professionals to help people who have those issues, but we also need to make sure they understand teaching a class isn't going to do that. A real case in point is diversity and inclusion training. It's a very big concern right now, and a lot of very well-intentioned leaders want to start changing that behavior, that ingrained unconscious bias that they know is going on in their organizations. Mm-hmm. Training can make you aware. It can even suggest that you change certain systems and certain ways of doing things, but it's not going to change that underlying bias. Mm-hmm. What you need to do for that is what we call nudge learning. It is repetitive, tiny interventions that happen in the moment, during work, when you are in a situation where you might be tempted to default back onto your unconscious bias. Now, unconscious bias exists because your brain has developed shortcuts that help us. Most of the time, these shortcuts are very, very beneficial. Everything we do at some point in our history as a species, was a survival tactic. That's why we do them. In today's world, they sometimes don't make sense, though, and aren't as effective as other behaviors might be that we haven't learned as a species. So um, a really nice project that I'm still working on is with a company called RevWork. And what we do is together is nudge learning. So we build programs that are delivered on people's phones that identify that they are in a situation, like maybe they're about to go to a meeting, that might have some diversity challenges in it. And a few suggestions will be pointed out, kind of like having just a friend on your shoulder. Say, hey, before you go in there, you might want to think about this. And then after the meeting, that same little friend will come up and say, hey, how'd it go? 
Maybe next time you want to do this. Is there any follow-up you'd like? Could I show you a video? Do you have anything you're questioning about? And that ongoing conversation that happens for 10 seconds, 30 seconds, very short intervals, those are those nudges, is a far more effective way to change behavior. Um, and the weight loss apps, which is a form of learning, uh, have demonstrated, if you think about somebody like Noom, what they do so well is change your eating choices. And they don't do it by sitting you in a 45-minute class about nutrition. They do it with tiny choices all throughout your day that take seconds for you to engage with the app, which is driven by AI, to make those changes. So that's what I mean by behavior change is something that happens over time. It happens in the real world as you engage and get feedback. And if we want to change your behavior, we need to introduce feedback that can happen in real time. And that's one of the things AI does exceptionally well. I think you just answered my next question about if it's possible to rewire our unconscious bias and, and to hardwire some of the ethical behavior into AI, that you just gave wonderful examples of how you have been able to do that. My last question is in this here I quote, the strange planet, unquote, you have described, which is more important, soft skills or hard skills? I get asked that question to all the time by my clients. And the truth is, I, I really don't think those terms apply anymore. Initially, people talked about soft skills being like people skills, asking good questions, interviewing skills, leadership skills, where a hard skill might be accounting, knowing how to operate a certain software. But you know, the brain doesn't segment learning like that. When I'm operating software, for example, I can't help but think about the personal applications behind that software. If I'm processing payroll, that, that's a hard skill, a lot of people would say. But there's something going on cognitively because I am aware that I am affecting people's livelihoods, that I may be making decisions about that, that I am responsible for getting them paid on time and accurately. Those things can't and shouldn't go away while we're doing a so-called hard skill. In today's world, it is nearly impossible to separate them. I think what is a more accurate statement is that we have technology skills and we have cognitive skills. Those two work together. So the human brain is just so much more complex that every time we try and say, well, there's this and there's that, we're almost always oversimplifying, like the whole thing about left brain and right brain thinking. We have known through neuroscience for a long time, thinking is not certain types of thinking, types of processing are not isolated to parts of the brain, even though you'll still read articles in the popular press that say there is a constant communication going on in your brain from all the different parts. It really is a holistic communication. So soft skills and hard skills are just two sides of the same coin. And that's how I like to look at it. Does that make sense? 
I love the redefinition and these delineations. Thank you so much, Margie.